Okay, you might have noticed that I've changed the music, but it's only for this particular podcast, because this podcast takes us on a bit of a world tour, and I'd like you to accompany the Urban Tiger to Spain, actually two timelines, modern Spain, medieval Spain, set around 900 AD, and back to Jerusalem, all the way back to the year 1 AD. So, accompany the Tiger on this journey along with the superb writer that is Stephen Meller. Hi, this is Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio, and I'm sat here this morning in conversation with a guy who's become a friend of mine. He's an absolutely wonderful writer. I was introduced to him by my partner, Bryony, who sent me an email that she'd received with a piece of prose on it uh, that she said wasn't particularly her genre or style and would I be interested in taking a look at it so I had a look at this piece of work and I know I've overused the phrase I was blown away by it but sorry I was blown away by it and uh, I said to Bryony if this guy could sustain this level of prose then I'm very very interested in working with him so can I please have his details so Bryony sent me the details and here we are uh, I've read now a lot of this guy's work and I'm consistently impressed by uh, the level of, of prose that Stephen brings to his work and the level of passion. So I'd just like to introduce you to Stephen Miller. Hello. Hello, Stephen. <laughs> We're sat here in Stephen's kitchen and uh, a rather nice one it is too. And we're talking about the Novel Slam because Stephen was also a participant in the Novel Slam that took place at Dina, supported by Sheffield University the other week. So tell me about the Novel Slam, Stephen. Well, let's start with the good news. I came third. Uh, it was my first time out, first time reading anything that I'd written. So it was fair, I think it's fair to say it was absolutely terrifying. Yes, just so terrifying experience. What was terrifying? Was it was it being judged on, on the work that you produced? Yes. I've spent... I've, I've stood up in front of many audiences over the years doing many different things, usually making some sort of fool out of myself. But the to actually stand up and read something that you have spent all that time with that is come straight from somewhere within you, whether that's heart, soul, brain, whatever... The old adage of blood, sweat, and tears applies to any of this, and to then stand up and read it, you are immensely exposed. And any comment, I suppose, whether it was good or bad, elicits some strange reaction in you because of that level of exposure. So, based on that, on your experience, what would you say to anyone else who was thinking of entering the novel slam? Oh, definitely do it. Just do it, and then afterwards, you think what the fuss was all about, and. It, it, it's it's a delight. It makes you realise... When you write, I, I believe anyway, you write to be read, or I do, and if somebody can't read your work for whatever reason, because it's not yet out there to be read, then for them to hear your words, that, that's the point where it starts to really become, I suppose, real for you, because... Otherwise, you spend all this time, you sit by yourself, you you churn through all the, the, the options over words and thoughts and premises and, and plots, and you, you end up with something. And then it's that next stage. Make it real by getting in front of people. Either get your book in front of somebody, get your words in front of somebody, or get yourself in front of somebody and make them listen to what you have to say. And there's, there's nothing better. Nothing that, better. I absolutely agree with that sentiment. There is nothing finer. And in actual fact, this morning we're getting your work out now already yes. in, in front of a, a much wider audience. Yes. I have to say, my, my work has been more listened to than read. And, uh, <laughs> so, so this is one of my minor successes doing the podcast. How long have you been writing, Stephen? The, the long answer to that is I've been writing since I was about 14. The short answer to that is I've been writing seriously if seriously is the right word, since about three, four years ago. Mm. There were a lot of things in life in between those two dates, which some uh, obvious, some less so. But I, I, I basically packed in work 
three, four years ago and just threw myself into this. Yeah. That's called life intervening yes. between writing and, <laughs> and, and getting on with it. Uh, yeah, well, I think, I think most writers, unless you're very, very lucky uh, and become established at a young age, I think most writers go through, go through the same process mm. anyway. But unless you've got a peculiar kind of imagination, I, I think all that experience adds to uh, the depth of your writing and the perspective you bring to your, to your work. Do you feel that applies to you? Very much so, because I, I started, as, as most kids, most boys, I suppose, of my age did, writing some form of comedy, trying to write comedy. You know, you had the, back then, you had the, 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 the outburst of, of influential comics and, and different types of comics coming through. So at 14, we all thought we could do the same. Back then, we wrote something. We never got it out. Uh, we just did it for ourselves more than anything else. And then you spend so much... I spent so much time between that sort of time and when I was about 25, writing comedy, being involved in comedy clubs, etc. at university, that when you... Then when you... I think when you sit down and you seriously put pen to paper into whatever form that you're thinking about, anything that you've written before is all part of the building block. However rubbish it might have been... It's all part of a building block to get to where you are now. Who were your influences from that time? In terms of well, writing, in terms of, of your writing or comedy, even comedy. I mean, my, my influence. It was strange because I went to a writing group once, and they were, everybody was talking about all the books they'd read and all the authors they love, etc. And I sat there and I thought, I actually, I've realised how little I'm influenced by writers as such uh, or novelists as such. I'm influenced by. Uh, Shakespeare, I adore Shakespeare. Whenever I get stuck and you want to, you think, what what do I go back to to help me along the way? I go back to uh, film scripts. I go back to to plays. I go back to the classics in the sense of the the ancient classics. I go back to Homer and Virgil and and the the, the Greek plays. That's what makes me want to write. Listening to those voices, however ancient they may be. Uh, yes, there's many present day or recent more recent authors that I admire and enjoy reading their work but the thing that if I said the thing that most inspires me was sorry excuse me is 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 much older voices than than exist at the moment yeah but those voices are still actually modern in in the scale of human history those voices are actually very very recent and uh, and still reflect the human condition. And, and yes, the, the themes that they cover, the, the the emotions that they cover, the ambitions that they cover, that they're, they're very real for you know today. And I'm, I, because I'm a history um, student, if you like, as a university, I was doing ancient history. I firmly believe that history teaches everything we need to know got to to move forward. When you look at what's happening in the world today, it's all there somewhere in history. History will tell us. What's going to happen next? And if we've got the the openness to look and to learn and to think about it, then you will end up with the answer, yes, however painful it might be. History shouts to us with a very quiet voice. Yes, very to much which so. we never listen. Yes, yeah. yeah. So many people don't listen. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Now, if you would tell me a little about dogs. Now, I know we use dogs as a familiar term for the book that is nearest to completion. Yes, uh, of yours. And actually, it's the one that I do admire the most, and which is only fair of me to say. Its actual title is... From Where We Threw Dogs. Now, can you explain the title? The title came from... Well, the whole book came from a, a journey around Spain many years ago. And the there is a gorge in the middle of Spain, which, if you just bear with me for a moment, because I can never say this without stumbling. The gorge is called... And, and if you speak Spanish or know Spanish, I apologise now. And in fact, I apologise to anybody Spanish as well for this. Desfiladero de Despeneperos is this gorge in the middle of Spain. It's on the road down from Toledo to Granada. And we were travelling through it and we were reading this guidebook about, about the, the, the gorge. And there was a, a famous battle there between some Spanish kings at one point. And um, the gorge is very severe, um, but there's a back way to the top of it. And the back way to the top of it was revealed to one of the other armies by a spy. Now, that army didn't win, but the, the victorious king then went and found these spies, took them to the top of the gorge and threw them off because they were treacherous dogs. 
I see. So uh, please don't think that I write about throwing puppies off a off a balcony or anything like that. It is purely the, 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 they refer to these men as treacherous dogs and they punish them by throwing them from the top of this gorge, which um, they, they're simple. They, they, it is such a severe gorge in, it, at one particular point they never would have survived. So it was... Uh, that's that for some reason stuck in my mind. It stuck in my mind as a great potential title. It stuck in my mind as something I could write around because my circumstances at the time was that my father had not long died and you know, I was not in a, the best of places for various reasons. And I certainly found that, well, the, the book is fairly autobiographical. The, the main protagonist runs away from from. His, his dreams and, and his nightmares, basically, and his demons, and tries to escape it all in, in Spain with a with a long-suffering girlfriend in tow. So, so this is this this guy you're talking about now yes. is the one that I know as the Traveller. Yeah, he's the modern-day uh, Traveller, yes. He's a modern-day. So we, we've got two timelines running throughout this book. Yes. One is present day, Yes. and the guy is known as the Traveller, and the other one is, is the Brigand King. Yes. And... And yet, the, these are two guys. They they sort of share a dream. They share many things, to be yeah. perfectly, many experiences. And and this guy, I suppose, goes back to this this and this this theme I've always believed in that the history teach. You know, if you want to know what's happening, look in, look in, look into the past. Yes, they, there's many similarities between the people. They're both described as looking similar. They're both described as as feeling an awful lot of the same base human emotions they don't do things similar because no. one is now and then well 1995 and one was the ninth century yeah and there's a there's a completely different uh, attitude to life in history than there is to, to to life now the sanctuary of life but the um they they share far more than than the traveler first realizes as he starts to to go through spain yeah, so so these two people are dealing with a sense of guilt in their own way. Huge amounts of guilt, yes. Yeah, do they share a guilt? They share the same sin in their the eyes. Sin. The same sin, which is yeah. um, this being my very first interview. I'm sort of how much do I give away for the book eventually? But you know, well, yeah, yeah, okay. You, you, they, they both share a, a, a belief of uh, of of uh, killing their father. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't worry too much about giving things away because uh, having read this book, it's the it's the prose and narrative that, that grabs you by the scruff of the Thank neck you. and drags you through the book. Even if you knew what the end was going to be, <laughs> yeah. you would still have to follow this book. This this book is so essential. I, I just couldn't put it down once I, once I began it. So I, I think it's a wonderful book and I know that you're working very hard now to find a sponsor for it, to find... A, an agent or, or a publisher for this book. Yes. And I, I wish you great success with it. And I just wonder if you would just now like to read us the section from the book that actually drew me into it in the first place, the bit that I received by email. Yes. Because one has to remember that it's in the ninth century and it's in Spain and that was an unholy place at that time. Very much so. Yeah. And uh, and people did things very differently in the past. A completely different country, as we know. So, if you would like to read us that section now. Certainly. So, this is uh, um, very close to the beginning of From Where We Threw Dogs. Uh, there is a little bit of swearing in it, so I apologise to anybody uh, on that basis. But, here we go. We pinned Jimmy down, stuck out his arms as if he was to be crucified and secured his ankles about a foot apart. He was on soft sandstone, the sort that easily splinters into flakes and rubs red against the skin, marking like blood when dried. With sharp steak knives snatched from a nearby kitchen, we cut into him. His first screams were of no significance. We cut slivers of flesh from his shoulders, trying to make them identical so he'd bleed, but only to a degree, not spurt, more weep. Then we cut along the inside of his forearms. God, he was now screaming. We had to gag him, so we used one of his own socks. So we sliced open each of his toes for good measure. Then the backs of his knees, along his thighs, between the predominant 
two muscles top and bottom, and then along the line of each of his ribs. By the time we'd finished, we totaled 15 more tender cuts. A hip flask, the tops of cauldrons, some cups, mugs and glasses, the lid of a saucepan, the saucepan itself. With these, we collected his blood, as if we'd unlearned that when you gather all that's good in a man, you gather with it all that's bad. He passed out long ago, so we removed his gag. In one large steel cauldron, with herbs and tomatoes, eyelashes and using locks of his hair as you would a bay leaf, we made a sauce from his blood and savoured the irony of someone who hated to cook ending up as another man's dish. We served him up with mushrooms and small fresh onions and gobbled the lot. We drank a toast with cheap red wine. I got indigestion, burped and kissed a passing adolescent dark-haired girl who had no breasts but a manner suggesting otherwise. She didn't slap me, but swore at me and went on her way. I did get a backwards glance, which is as good as a fuck in some romances. Next morning we did Jimmy the honour and buried him in hills purple with minerals. No headstone. There was no need. The crows and scavengers had been during the night and there was very little face left. For that, I felt guilty. We should have buried him sooner, I said. Why? said Alec. The dead don't know. His ghost will. There's no such things as ghosts. How can you say that when you haunt me? Later we sat upon the purple stone at its highest point, feeling our indigestion battle through to our stomachs. Alec joked that Jimmy was surprisingly rich. I said nothing. Just remind us who the protagonist is in in that particular section. This is that the the, the the person having the dream, and it is a dream, um, is the the modern day traveller. But this is how the the, the 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 two timelines start to come together at the very beginning. He starts dreaming of acts that he otherwise would never take part in. He starts dreaming of people like Jimmy and Alec, who are ghosts ultimately from the ninth century, coming forward into the modern day time. And starts to have conversations with these these characters, these voices. Yeah. So, so the name of the protagonist in that particular piece is is the traveller carving. No, the guy oh. who's carving Jimmy up. Yes, is the traveller. So, if I recall from uh, the novel, this is the dream that the traveller is having while he's on the aeroplane. Yes. Is he travelling to yes. Spain? And yes. he's dreaming of the Infante, who is the brigand king, carrying out this act. Um, he's actually dreaming of himself carrying out the act. It's yeah. a, this is a, a, a horrific nightmare that he's having whilst, whilst flying there. And yes, he's dreaming of an act that the, began, the, 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 the brigand king, uh, I call him Infante, um, will actually do later on in life. Ah, but this is all in the traveller's past, obviously. This is all in the traveller's past. So this is to do with the linking of the, of the two timelines yes it's a sort of a metaphysical connection yes if that's the right yeah. word i think I somebody described right. it to me the other day as the genre being time slip yeah. and I, I don't know if it is or not it's one of those where i spoke to three different people that day and they all had a different they all had a different definition of uh, that particular genre so well, it's that's kind of, writers for you yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm not sure which one it is but yes the the the, the key is you learn that the, the story of the ninth century city king well as as it slowly slips towards the modern-day traveller, and eventually they do converge. Yeah. So, what, I, what I really enjoy about that selection is that it's told in a very calm, measured, matter-of-fact way, as though this is something that is done every day. Yes. Everyone does it. Nobody thinks twice about it. And it's just, you know, so matter-of-fact. And, and I found, when I read that, that that was where the, the true terror was in it actually that it was so matter of fact it's a dispassionate act yeah that's yeah. the word i wasn't looking for uh, <laughs> so i i left my dictionary at home this morning uh, but yeah it's totally dispassionate and that that is what really struck a chord with me uh in, in the writing well I, th- I think it's it's um, it, I never did any sciences, and this is a, might seem like a very sudden left turn to 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 what we were just talking about. I never did any sciences at school, and I, I I'm dyslexic, so 
and and I, I I failed everything to do with science and maths and languages. Uh, but what I could do was 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 focus on history and understand the people and their actions at the time those actions happened. And I think there's a great misunderstanding in 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 us as as a as a as a people that. We look back on what the Romans did, what the Greeks did, and what various other people did, and we we feel appalled by it. We feel some sort of shame when actually they were just doing what was accepted back then. And I think it's important that that. And I'm sorry, I find it fascinating that when you actually look into the, the you know the the past of people, hmm. and you go, yes, life was exceptionally cheap, ridiculously cheap, but. There were other redeeming factors to all these people. The fact that they may be killers doesn't necessarily, at a time when you either killed or were killed, um, doesn't make them bad people. No, we suffer from a toxic cult of sentimentality yes, these yeah. days. And, it's a great way and, and to revisit the past uh, with with modern morals and mores is, is, is wrong. Yes. Not only is it something that you're wasting your time on, it's just, I mean, like people trying take down the statue of Cecil Rhodes from a university because yes. they don't know because they no longer approve of what he did. What he did in his time he was a hero. And you know, I mean it's it's ridiculous. And instead of celebrating what we have been in the past, we're being made constantly to feel as though we should be apologizing for everything yes. that, that that we did. It's like asking the people of modern Japan to apologize for what they did in the Pacific, and which they're constantly being asked to do. Yes, yeah. And, yeah. and yet these aren't the same people, and, and the same morals just don't prevail. Anyway, to get back to your writing. So, yeah. That's okay. Um, I know that, that From Where We Threw Dogs has this narrowing trajectory that, that really pulls the reader along, and I would recommend it thoroughly to anyone. And... How much more editing do you think you have left on this book now before it's done? Or will that depend on whoever wants to take it on and publish it? I think it depends on whoever wants to take it on and publish it, if somebody does. I think you can tinker and tinker and tinker till the cows come home with, with whatever you write. And at some point you end up tinkering yourself back into a bad place if you're not careful. And Dogs has been 25 years in the making and it's got to a point where if I want to progress as a writer, as I want to progress from my you know, my ability as a writer, which I think I still can do and I still want to do, desperately want to do, then I need to put dogs down and accept that the story is told. Obviously, if somebody comes along and says, you know... Tweak this, tweak that. Tweak this, tweak yeah. that, and we'll put yeah. you on the shelves of well, Waterstones. I'll, I'll, I'll then go back to it. But at yeah. the moment in time, I don't feel that I... I'm personally capable with the, the the writing knowledge that I have to do anything to it. There's a, there's a guy in Berlin that I work with, a guy called Tim Woods. He's just put out his first book, Loving the Time of Britpop, mm. set in the yes. 90s when he was a student in Sheffield. Yeah. Very, very interesting book, quite funny. And, you know, an, such an amusing read. And it does have a narrative that drags you along as well, uh, which is why I helped him out. He quoted somebody to me, and I, I can't remember who the, who the quote was from, and they said, you never finish a book, you just stop. Yes. You know, you never finish writing. I think it's a very clever thing to stop. say, to be perfectly honest. It, and that's how I feel with, yeah. with dogs. Now, it, it's it's time to move on and try and write something else. Yeah, well, I wish you every success in getting that published. Now, you're going to read us another piece from Dogs, I yes. do believe. Even this is going to be set in modern day or 1995 Barcelona? Yes, this is uh, towards the end of the book. They've reached Barcelona. They they travel round and through various places in Spain, but the target was always to get to Barcelona. So they've reached Barcelona and there's a thunderstorm that night. It's all part and parcel of how the modern-day traveller starts to rebuild his life. There's, there's, there's no secret. The, the fellow's basically breaking down through most yeah. of the book. And now, that. you read this piece for the Novel Slam. Yes. Part yes. of the problem that you had with reading this for the Novel Slam is that certain parts of it are contextual. Yes. And this is a problem for everyone who does the Novel Slam. Yeah. Because a novel is not just, uh, unless it's The Fox and the Fish by Me, a novel is not a series of episodes 
My Fox and the Fish is very episodic. Right. So you can actually read a chapter. Yeah. This is, they're all standalone chapters, whereas most people's novels are contextual. You had this problem when you I read, and did, I think yeah. this is why you you came, why you didn't come at the top of the uh, of the uh, list. Of, uh, I, I think novels. well, Ollie read uh, Ollie who won it right. Well, so Ollie's superb. Ollie, yeah. Yeah, superb. But he, yeah. he read the opening part of his of his novel, and I wouldn't like to say you know if I if I hadn't read a piece that had come. Uh, had that contextualized I can't even say the word. What you know, the bit that you just said there, Bill. But yeah, okay. it, uh, I don't think it it would have made a difference on that sort of sense. I'm very proud of the bit that I wrote, I read. I see the the challenge that it set the judges who had a very difficult job that night. But saying all of that, Ollie was, yeah. Ollie's was excellent. Well, if anyone wants to listen to Ollie, there's a, there's my conversation with yes, Ollie Francis is, yes. on on the podcast, and Ollie reads. Beautifully, he Ollie does. is Ollie. <laughs> you can't take that away from him. Ollie has a, a fantastic voice and a, and a measure, and um, he is a super writer. Check him out on my podcast, my conversation with Ollie Francis. He has a, a story there called Sandcastles. That's super. Is absolutely super. Anyway, get back to Stephen. We've done Ollie, and that's, that's fair enough. <laughs> to get back to Stephen, uh, yeah, and, and like I said, it, it's hard to take a piece out of context and submit it in a novel slam, and that's my advice to anyone who is going to read a novel mm. slam. Look for something that doesn't have context in it, and that, yes. that just stands alone. It doesn't have to be a lot, does it? So, right, okay, so you're going to read from us... Is there a chapter name for this one, or is it a number? It was just a number. There's okay. a place setting, which I'll, I'll... The place setting is Barcelona. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's the, okay. the, the Plaza Catalunya in, uh, at the top of the Ramblas in Barcelona. That night, there was a thunderstorm, the like of which I'd never seen. I was telephoning ahead to our final hotel from a payphone in the Plaza Catalunya, when the whole sky, from here to heaven, burst with a pure, unpolluted clarity, a lightning that was not clear, not white, not snow, not paper, not paint. Imagine heaven opening, imagine all the halos of all the angels, and this is what we were party to. In less than a breath, the thunder followed breaking as if the gates of hell were opening beneath our feet and all the dead bellowed as one. My chest shook. Then all was gone. Heaven and hell were again closed. I held a smoking, dead telephone in my hand. Then the rain came, flooding streets and pavements with biblical ease. Sarah abandoned the bench on which she'd been waiting and together drenched, we ran for shelter, finding it in the Art Deco doorway of the Bank of Catalonia. An hour passed, just watching the storm, applauding and waving to the handful of soaked and courageous people scurrying by. We were shivering, but alive. Alive with awe and laughter and lust. We kissed deep and longing and desperate, our clothes damp and clinging as we pushed and dragged each other back into the rain. Sarah squealed when more thunder struck. I grabbed at her and she thrust at me. In all the weeks we'd been in this country, we'd only twice seen rain. But each time, I swear, it flooded and cleansed with the passion of Christ. It was hours before the telephones returned. Not that we cared. By then, the smell of burnt technology had been replaced with the smell of backstreet tapas and fresh coffee. As we traded our doorway shelter for a nearby bar where the brandy was warming, our clothes could dry, and black and white photos of old footballers adorned the walls. What are you looking at? said Sarah. You, I said. Why? It was time to jump into the abyss. Because I love you. She took her time before she said, That's the first time you've said that to me. I got shy and honest and confessed, That's my fault. I should have said it sooner. But I haven't said it to you. I held her hand. You don't have to. 
She smiled and said, So now what do we do? Resting on the high stools, I dreamt myself back at the gorge. Sunlight would prick through the slightest crack in the massed clouds. Goats would break from cover to bask in its delicate heat. Travellers would grab at its respite, before shrugging and tugging at the cloaks, and resuming their pace with vigour. I was standing at the height of the gorge, a willing witness to the storm rumbling and mumbling away like the bad-tempered old man I could easily become. Well, that's fantastic. That, that's probably the most evocative um, piece of prose in respect of a thunderstorm that I've ever heard. I know I read this off the page and I was very much impressed with it. In fact, when I when I tried to get tried very hard to get you an agent some time ago, <laughs> and, and I, I didn't meet with no success. I had moderate success. I actually read this piece to to Joan yes. Deach my friend who worked for Pollingers. And Joan was on a bus in London and was about to get off. And I I said, Joanie, just listen to this. And I, and I read it to her. And she stopped on the bus <laughs> until I'd finished. <laughs> and I hope she got off at the right stop. I think she did. But she, she was about to get off the bus and decided to sit and listen to this piece out. And... When she emailed me later, she said that she hoped very, very much to hear much more from this young man in future. Critics don't come much better than Joan, and, and Joan is a tremendous reader and proofreader and editor, and uh, and I think you should bask in, in <laughs> Joan's words, and, I, and, I was, and I'm very glad to be able to provide them to you. She was very now, kind, yes. So, okay, so, so now we've got, from where we threw dogs, we've... we've had um, a taste of the time in which yes. the Infante lived in around about 900 AD, yes. is it? Yeah. And, and 1995, where the Traveller lives. And these two guys are inextricably linked by guilt and sin and yes. share a dream. Yes. And uh, and I, I don't think we ought to say any more about that one now. But what I'd like to talk about now is you have two other books on the go. Yes. And they, they both have a sort of religious theme, am I, am I right? Very much so, yes. Yeah. So one of them is called Gospel. At the moment, yes, the working title is Gospel. And the other one is the working title of Lazarus. Yeah. Which one is the furthest on? The one that has got the most words at this moment in time is Gospel. The one that I feel most that I've nailed the voice that needs to be there, is Lazarus. Mm. Uh, I, I, like I did with dogs, you, you write it, you put it away, you come back to it at a later time. That's what, exactly what I've done with gospel. I've been very fortunate to have a number of people, some friends, some friends of friends, and some people that kindly just said yes, send it my way, who did a, uh, an early reading of gospel and gave me some feedback, which ranged from no feedback at all, which is, worthwhile in the sense because you know something's not right with it to some very detailed feedback about what they liked and not and what a couple of people absolutely raved about it all of it was very encouraging all of it was very terrifying as like i said at the beginning it's about the whole you're being judged in some shape or form but the end result of all of that is i know there's something not right there's right there's not so start again there's something not right with gospel and that needs i think time for me to find that out and, and put it, you know, rewrite it in the manner that is the voice that I really want it to be coming through. Yeah, if it's, if it's any help, what it needs is not time, but distance. You, yes. You need to distance yourself from, from the book. Yes. And you can put it away in a drawer and leave it and come back to it six months or a year later and, and pick it up. Sometimes you think, did I really write that? Or sometimes you think, did I really write that? Yeah. You know, usually it's... Oh, did I really write that? <laughs> I mean, it is with me anyway. But but you need that distance in order to clarify your thoughts relating to what's wrong with the book because when you're writing it, you inhabit the protagonists and you inhabit the situation. Poets do this to their detriment because one of the things that they do do is write down a few words, but the rest of the poem is still in their head. Yes. You have to learn not to do that. 
I used to do that. We all did that. And and I think when you're as close to something as you are to gospel, because gospel I know is a book that you're actually working very hard at. Yes, indeed. And and that brings you too close to the book. You just need that distance. Just push it away from you and uh, and then come back to it. And I think you, you'll probably see then what you've discerned is wrong with it. And actually, what you haven't discerned is what's wrong with it. You've discerned that there is something wrong with it, but not exactly what it is. Now, I'm more interested in Lazarus because I've read some of both of these books. And I'm probably one of your... Uh, detractors from gospel and I'll put my hand <laughs> up to that because like you say you, you're still looking actually for the voice in that I, I think the story's good and I think once you find the voice you, you will be off and running and, and it will gallop on Lazarus I like because of its sense of pressure the situation at the beginning of Lazarus felt something like a pressure cooker here were people people we actually know or think we know and they're reacting in different ways and saying different things, and yes. they're saying that the situation is not as we read it initially in, in our experience. And consequently, because of that, I, I feel that, that they, are, they are under pressure, and the sense of place that it gives me feels, feels small, compressed, and these are people who can't turn around without bumping into each other. Yeah. And... Uh, and consequently, that increases the tension between the protagonists in the in the story. So, if you'd like to read us the beginning, I do believe it is. Yes, it is. Of, yeah. of Lazarus. Yeah. And uh, again, this has a religious theme. It's a. Uh, I hesitate to say it's a it's a retelling. Is it a contra telling of a story that we think we know? Well, we all think we well. It, it amazes me the amount of people at this moment in time who don't know our biblical stories. And um, wh- however you want to see them, as truth, myth, whatever, it doesn't It doesn't bother me. I, I'm not a religious person, but I'm fascinated by how the, the, the role that the church has played in our history, not just our history, but other people's history. And that's the same for, for all religions. But the one thing that is very clear, I think, is that all religions, or certainly Christianity, is some form of... There's been plenty of rewriting over the years involved. And that took me, made me think, well, what happened if some of the rewriting that happened and, and, and some of the, if you like, the deleting of various bits of writing, which is the truth? Is this the stuff that got thrown away the truth? Is the stuff we have now the truth, if there is such a thing as truth in religion? Which one is it? And it, I think it's a great place because it allows the writer, it certainly allows the imagination to, to run around and fit into lots of different rooms and say, well, I love that bit of knowledge, I love that bit there, I love that bit of the saying, I love that bit of the, 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 the parable, and I'll come up with something different. And that's what Gospel's about, um, which is the retelling of the devil's story. And Lazarus is a continuation of that. So the, the, the devil in, in Lazarus, because he is about to appear, is not the devil that we think of as being devil, which is supposed with you know Halloween just around the corner. It's quite potentially quite apt, but and nor is Lazarus, because we all know the story of Lazarus, which is the fellow who died and 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 Jesus brought back to to life at some point. To me, if you read the Bible, it's a it's a passing little mention about this this particular miracle. It's a very important miracle because it's establishing, you know, that Jesus is the person that he, he, according to the Bible, went on to become. But it's a very small part of his story. But what happens if you were actually Lazarus himself and this happened to you? Then how would you actually recover, feel and all the rest of it? Okay. So, Stephen, pick up thy bed and walk us through Lazarus. Okay. You have to go. None of us were so blunt with Mary as Diablo. We didn't dare. We spent the last three weeks in hiding, moving from house to house like rats avoiding light, all the while trying to persuade Mary that Jerusalem was no longer safe. And in walks Diablo, gathers up her belongings, lifts her to her feet and tells her, Mary, listen to me. 
You have to go. But he's risen, said Mary. It's not safe for you here. Diablo covered her head and placed a shawl around her shoulders. They were both as stubborn as each other. But what if he returns? He held her wrists. Her fists clenched like she was ready to fight. She made rare eye contact with the rest of us, but with him, her gaze was never broken. If he does, he'll come and find you. How do... how... how do you know? Because that's what I would do. I thought the world had stopped. Again. Three weeks ago, they crucified Jesus. The arguments hadn't stopped since. I understand, of a sorts, everyone was afraid. Jesus and Mary were married. She was being hunted for that fact alone. The disciples had scattered. Most had fled Jerusalem, and the few that hadn't wanted nothing to do with us. We were all on some water wheel of survival, trying to avoid our own differences, never mind our hunters. Jesus had been my friend since we were children, since before he was whatever he'd become. I don't care for his miracles and him being a messiah. When you've been boys together, you don't think so much on what a man's become. Well, that's what I thought. So it is with the others we grew up with. Haran's now a fisherman in Galilee, but he's always the kid I had my first fight with. Can't remember why, but he was. We were friends before, during, and still are. I got caught stealing eggs with Johan, but he's now a baker. Noach is the kid who pushed me over because my carved wooden soldier was better than his. Or so I said. He's now a record keeper for the temple and has tipped us off a couple of times. Mary is my sister, as is Martha. Martha is the eldest. I am the youngest. Mary showed me how to tend nets when I was ten. I never got the hang of it. I was always better with animals. Now I'm the brother-in-law of a man crucified for leading a rebellion and proclaiming a false prophet. Look at me. Look at her and everyone else in this room. Martha, Joseph, Sarah and some others. I don't know their names. They come and go between safe houses just like we do, all of us secretly fearful for our lives. I hate Jerusalem. I'd never been until this Passover. I'd heard about the glory of the temple, but no one wanted to mention the filth in the streets, the beggars, the balls, the sheer suffocating presence of so many people enduring a shanty existence. We may be outside the city gates now, but we spent weeks scurrying between shoehorned houses in claustrophobic streets. I hate Jerusalem. It's got no fields, and any animal there is, is there to die. You get the tiniest scrap of sky, the bit that's just above your head. No more than that. Like that's your quota, like the horizon is taxed, and that's all you can afford. That's all I could afford. The rabbi used to tell me I'd amount to nothing. I was too lazy Lazarus. That's what he called me, lazy Lazarus. Some people are just happy with their lot in life. I don't need to know the scriptures. I don't need to follow a messiah. I don't even care for a wife. But now look at me. I'm part of a rebellion. That's what they're saying in the streets of the markets. What do you think to that, Rabbi? I'm hunted by Romans and Jews. It's some achievement to unite those two. Brilliantly read, Stephen. Brilliantly read. And, and as I said, before we started to read that, the, the whole claustrophobic nature of, of the situation there really comes across. And, and the sense of oppression and being hunted. I, you know, I, I do really like that. I know when you sent me the opening chapter, I immediately read it. And without criticism, I just read straight through it. So... Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think that's your maybe going to be your second one. I think it certainly feels uh, more accessible to me at this moment yeah. in time. I, I want to know how you're going to work the Diablo thing because from what you're, you've just been telling us, actually, you introduced Diablo in 
In gospel. Gospel. Yes. I wanted to say gossip. I don't know. Why I <laughs> in gospel. And and now you're reintroducing him as a known quantity in Lazarus. So that you're going to have to do something. Yes. With that, I I feel. I haven't worked that one out yet. Yeah, but that that maybe your start of a ten. You know, that's your homework. Yes, indeed. How are you going to do yeah. Diablo? How are you going to How are you going to introduce him again, but without uh, without prior knowledge? Yes. Bring him in gently, carefully somehow. I'm not sure. But I'll leave that one to you because mm. uh, having read your work, I know that you are inimitably capable of Thank you. doing that sort of thing. I, I have to say that not many writers impressed me from the off. But right. you did. Thank you. And you are very welcome for that. That's not a false compliment either. Very few writers impress me from the off. Most books have what I call a Hitler wall moment. Because yeah. I read in bed and I'll get to page 35 and go, oh, I can't do with this and just throw it at the wall. <laughs> so, but none of your workers had that hit the wall moment. So I, I, I've done a, when I, when I stopped working in a traditional way and started to, to, to write, I spent a year learning and that's not saying I've learnt everything and I'm not bigging up my own work in any shape or form, but I thought it was very important. I'd written a version of, of Dogs, which was atrocious. And I thought, as a lot of people I think I've met along the, the way since, you know, they write something and go, yes, it's done. And in, in truth, they haven't got enough of an inner critic. And I think that's exceptionally important for anybody writing is to find that inner critic and maybe not let them loose on themselves as much as, I've done over the in the past, but but certainly let them loose on the work. So, I I thought I can be a better writer than I than I was when I gave up work. So I I spent the time studying, as I say, and it's it's uh, you know, study, you read, you listen, you you search out the the good advice. There's plenty of advice, and not all of it's to be taken, but you search out the good advice, and I think that ultimately lets you almost into one or two secrets of 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 a decent novel and a, and a less decent novel in the sense of plus on top of that I don't think there's many of the, 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 the script writers that I admire who don't throw you straight into something yeah. and and you know leave you scrabbling around for some security something solid between beneath your toes but it's an enjoyable ride while it happens. Yeah, it's immersive. Yes, and that, that's yeah. what I've always wanted to try and achieve. Yeah, well, you do that with Lazarus because you, you throw yeah. us into people and situations that we are aware of, mm. although their interpretation of them is maybe not the one that we currently hold. Yes, yes. And, uh, and that is where you lose your, your foothold and that's where you, you're left looking for security within a, a known uh, yes. environment. Yeah. And, and I think that's actually quite clever. Now you mentioned that you uh, you gave up work to, yes. to write, basically. So, what is your background, Stephen? My working background mm. is uh, it's a family business. I've been running it. I ran it for about twenty five years after my father's death, uh, and it was uh, energy purchasing on behalf of consumers. Uh, and then we went into environmental services as well. So it's, it's about if you're going to buy energy, which electricity, gas, water, which we all have to do, buy it at the right price and then only use the uh, the amount of it that you really need to use. That's our job. And that's your job? Yeah. Was, you, you, so basically you, you set up a supply for a client and then manage the supply. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. To their best advantage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds... Uh, Actually, that sounds quite environmentally sound somehow, doesn't it? It is. It's one of those where the, the, I, I can sit with some pride at the amount of, uh, of energy that the business or the, the business that I ran and now is, is run by a very good friend of mine. Uh, the amount of energy that we have saved over the years. It's it's you know people are always going about they, you know they, they do things to renewable uh, energies, where it's pla or plastics and all the you know it's so much of a of a buzzword and a, a need as well. It's a massive need for the for the world to, to, to do. And we've done tremendous amounts of, of saving that energy over the years. Yeah, we don't get it? the credit for it because the customer gets the credit for it. And yeah, it's ultimately the it's their energy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, without yeah, a shadow of doubt. Yeah, shareholders reap the profit. Yeah. 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 
but it's, it's something that's it's it close to my, my heart. Keeps my pension going. Yeah, yes, indeed, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. It keeps all our pensions going all being well, some of these sort yeah. of things. But uh, it's very close to my heart that, that we end up with, you know, that we are sensible about the impact we're having on our own planet. It's a straightforward. It, to me, that it doesn't make sense not to do that. So not only are you a superb writer, environmentally conscious. Yes. Cheap to run. <laughs> I, I'm quite a cheap date, yeah. <laughs> oh, and you get parking tickets in Hathersley. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Let's not talk about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I put my hand up. That's um, that's my fault. Although I have to, I have to say, in case in case it ever gets heard, there was a uh, I nearly got one in the centre of Sheffield the other day, and I just got back as the uh, the lady. Um, uh, meter maid, can I call her meter maid anymore? Yeah, I don't can. know. Uh, was just looking at my car and she just gave me a stern look and a wag of her finger and said, Get out of here. And I th- you know, they get a bad press, so I'm going to say nice things about that particular one, right? She, okay. might, she might let me off another one one day, <laughs> right? And on that uh, reassuring <laughs> note, I think we'll bring this to a close because I think we've read all we were going to read. Excellent, okay. and uh, uh, I can only thank you for spending the time with me and telling us more about your writing and your hopes and aspirations and your life. Well, for the first, first time ever being interviewed about my writing, um, one is a massive relief that we've come to the end of it, I must say. But um, it, <laughs> I'm, wasn't quite I'm terrifying. As, it wasn't quite as terrifying as the novel slam. <laughs> but thank you. No, you're more than welcome. Thank you, Steve. Thanks.